All right. Well, are you ready for the Word of God this morning? All right. So we are continuing on in our series entitled Untying What's Tying You Up. It's based on a scripture found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1. And if you would, will you all read this out loud with me? It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And especially that middle phrase, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Now, so far in this series, we've looked at three things that can tie you up. We've looked at the knot of worry and the knot of jealousy and the knot of anger. And we've looked at what the Bible says about how to untie these knots in our lives. And I know that the last few weeks, a number of you have told me that, you know, you're doing just that. You're throwing off worry and uh, you're walking in faith. You've been holding the things that God gives you with an open hand towards him so that you can avoid destructive jealousy. And you've been living by the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of love and peace and joy rather than being ruled by destructive forms of anger. Now, this morning, we want to look at another knot that can tie you up and hinder you in your walk with Jesus if you're not careful. It is the knot of pride. And this knot may be one of the most difficult knots to deal with. And that's because pride may be one of the most difficult sins to see in ourselves. You know, it's easy to spot in other people. So everybody else has a problem with pride. You know, anger is easy to spot in yourself. I mean, when you're angry, you're usually pretty aware of it, right? I mean, nobody says something like, was I just angry just then? I'm not sure. Right? And, and when you're jealous, you're usually pretty aware of your feelings of jealousy. And when you're worried, you're, you're really aware of the anxiety and the fear that you're experiencing, right? But pride kind of masks itself. It, it hides. Often, just when someone has convinced themselves that they have overcome pride, that very conclusion becomes the point at which pride is reintroduced. It's like the Bible teacher who was teaching on the parable of the prideful Pharisee and the humble tax collector who went on to close by saying, okay, would you all now join me in prayer thanking God that we are not like that Pharisee? Think about that for a minute. Some of you are going to get that on the ride home. Pride. Sometimes when you've conquered it, you can fall right back into it again. It hides. It disguises itself. But the truth is that pride is part of the human condition. All of us have the capacity for sinful forms of pride. As a matter of fact, it is one of the three categories of sins that the Bible says that all sins fall into. Did you know that? Here, let me show it to you in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The Apostle John said in this letter that everything in the world, everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Every sin that can be committed falls into one of these three categories. It's either the lust of the flesh, and that's, that would be all immoral, uh, sinful pleasures. Anything immoral that is lavished on self, that's the lust of the flesh. And then there's the lust of the eyes. That's, that's greed and covetousness and desires for money and possessions and the things that you see, that's the lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life. That's haughtiness, that's self-centeredness, self-focusedness. And you might even say that a third of what the Bible calls sin 
falls into this category of pride. And so all of us struggle with it. It's one of those sins that can easily beset us. It can easily entangle us and tie us up in a knot. And the problem with pride is that it's so seductive. Pride says so many nice things about you. How many of you like it when people say bad things about you? Right? You like it when people say nice things about you, right? I mean, I like it when people say nice things about me, right? You like it when people say nice things about you. And that's the problem with pride is pride says so many nice things about you in your ear. You're so wonderful. You're so awesome. You're so smart. Like this little boy who came home after two weeks in kindergarten and told his grandmother that he was the smartest kid in class and the grandmother uh, was, was filled with, with pride over him and said, wow, did the teacher tell you that? And he said, no, ma'am, I had to tell her. <laughs> pride says so many nice things about you. It says, aren't you so special? It's that little voice that keeps telling you that you're something else. You know, Without you, nothing would function right. Everything would fall apart without you. The whole organization would cease to exist without you. Without you, everything would just collapse and be a disaster. It's that voice that keeps saying, isn't everybody so blessed just to know you? Isn't everybody so blessed just to be in your sphere and, and to be around you and to bask in your glory? You're such a gift to the world. Aren't, aren't people lucky to be around you? Like this young man who graduated college and he had an, an interview with a large grocery store chain and, and they gave him a job and sent him to a store and on the first day the manager met him and gave him a broom and said, here, your first job today is to sweep the floor. And he was a little bit surprised and taken aback and, and looked at him and said, but I'm a college graduate. And the manager said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that, took the broom back and said, here, let me show you how. Pride says that the, everything is dependent upon you. It's so seductive. It lies to you about how important you are. It lies to you about how awesome you are, about, about how much more talented and gifted and special you are than anybody else. It keeps saying such nice things about you. But pride will tie you up in a knot. If you let it, it will bind you in a way that you don't even realize that you're being bound by it. So this morning, we're going to look at some of what the Bible has to say about pride and about how to untie the knot of pride. Now, there are two kinds of pride that we see in the Bible. There's sinful pride and there's non-sinful pride. Now, it may surprise you to know that you know, the Bible uh, shows a non-sinful uh, kind of pride. And we're not going to look much at that today uh, except to um, say that the biblical concept carries with it the idea of rejoicing when someone does the right thing or displays the right attitude. So the idea would be this. Your kid comes home and he has a report card that has all A's. All right, now if you say, well, I am so proud of you. You are so smart. You're smarter than everybody in your class. You're probably smarter than everyone in the fifth grade and the sixth grade too. As you're better than everybody else. Well, that's a sinful form of pride. It's comparing with other people, right? But if the, your child comes home with that report card with all A's and you say, you know, I'm so proud of you. I saw the hard work you did to get all of those A's. You, you sacrificed, and the Bible says that hard work and diligence will be rewarded, and you, and you worked really hard. 
I'm proud of you. Well, that's a non-sinful form of pride. When we rejoice in the things that God rejoices in. If you want an example of that, you can look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and see Paul's pride that he has in some of the good things that the Corinthians were doing. All right? But for now, for this morning, we're going to look at sinful forms of pride. There is a pride that is sinful. Proverbs 16.5 says this, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. And then in chapter 21, verse 4, it says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. Now, can I tell you what? That's some pretty nasty stuff, isn't it? I mean, it says, the proud heart is an abomination. How many of you think, you know, when you've had a little bit about a pride, that it was an abomination? I mean, do we think in those kinds of terms? Like, God, I'm sorry for that abomination that just came into my heart. But it says here, a proud heart is an abomination. It says, it will be punished. It says, it's sinful and haughty. I mean, that's pretty, some pretty nasty stuff. I mean, this is a different kind of pride than that non-sinful pride that we were talking about. Let's look at it. Again, in John chapter 2, verse 16, it said, For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the word, word used for pride in that verse, it's a different word than is used in Corinthians. When Paul says, I take pride in the Corinthians. All right, The word in Corinthians is kachema. Kachema. Can you say that with me? Kachema. Now you learned a Greek word, kachema. And it means pride in the sense of not arrogance, but uh, boasting in something that is worthy to be boasted about. All right? But here in this passage, the word is alazonei. Alazonei. Can you say that with me? Alazonei. All right, there's your second Greek word today. And, and I share them with you to show you the difference between them. This word alazonei, it's a much stronger word than kachema. It's a type of pride that comes with arrogance. It comes with pretentiousness. With, it's self-focused and self-absorbed. It's impressed with itself. It's concerned with itself at the expense of the needs of others. So this is the kind of pride that the Bible calls the pride of life. And this is the kind of pride that the book of Proverbs often warns us about. All right, so let's begin to unpack this kind of pride. And as we do, we're going to see five things that the Bible has to say about sinful pride and how, you can, how it can tie you up and what it says about how you can untie or free yourself from this kind of pride. All right, five things the Bible has to say about this kind of sinful pride. All right, first, sinful pride is conceited. If you're taking notes, that's your first note. Sinful pride is conceited. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 16. It says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Sinful pride thinks of itself more highly than it ought to. Sinful pride thinks of itself as more talented, more gifted, and important than other people. This kind of type of pride is always comparing itself with other people, comparing itself favorably with other people. It's like this one guy who was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and he, he pulled into a service station and filled his car with gas and went in to pay. And as he was paying, he looked out and saw one of the attendants out there talking with his wife and recognized that, you know, this was a guy that way back in the day his wife used to date. So he finished paying his bill, went out, got in the car, they drove away and had a few minutes of silence. And finally, the husband, feeling pretty good about himself, said, you know what, uh, I think I know what you were thinking back there at the gas station. 
I think you were thinking, boy, am I glad I, that you married me here, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and not that gas station attendant. And she paused a second and said, well, no, that's not really what I was thinking. What I was thinking is that if I'd married him, he'd be a CEO of a five, Fortune 500 company. <laughs> and you'd be a gas station attendant. I think there's probably some truth in that. Pride thinks of itself more highly than it ought to. It puts itself above other people. And here in the broader passage in Romans chapter 12, Paul is encouraging the Roman believers with several ways in which they can put love into action. And in this verse, he displays a concern that there might be some divisions and factions among them that are based on a worldly caste type of system. And in the Roman and Greek pagan world, it was common for the culture to be divided along these lines. And the problem is that these ideas, if left unchecked, will tie you up in a knot of a superiority complex. It will tie you up in a knot of pride if you let these ideas work their way through your mind and heart. And look at God's solution for this kind of pride. He says, be willing to associate with people of low position. Be willing to associate with everybody. Don't view yourself as above anybody. And so when you come into the kingdom of God, all these lines must disappear. You can't look at yourself as better because you have more wealth or because you have more education or because you think you have more intelligence. In the kingdom, all of those things don't matter. In the kingdom, everyone is equally valuable before God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The rich and the poor come to Jesus on the same level. The educated and the uneducated come to Jesus on the same level. And so he says, do not be conceited or proud. Be willing to associate with everyone. You know, some of the most successful leaders that I've read, one of the things inevitably you see in what they're writing, they'll say something along the lines of that they never lost a connection with the shop floor. They may be the vice president or the CEO, you know, but they never lost a connection with the shop floor. Never got to the place where they, were, they felt themselves to be way up here, you know, above everybody else. And if, you're, if you've been sitting here this morning and struggling with some idea, like some person's come into your mind and you're saying, God, I don't want to associate with that person. God, I don't. That's probably the very remedy that you need is to associate with that person. If there are some people you think you're above, God's remedy is that you associate with them. If you're going to untie this kind of pride, you're going to keep from being tied up by this kind of pride, then make up your mind that you are no better than anyone else in the kingdom. You, are no, you have no more rights than anyone else. You have no more importance than anyone else and that you will associate with anyone else. Make up your mind that you are above no one. Sinful pride is conceded. And then secondly, sinful pride is self-sufficient. Psalm chapter 10 verse 4 says this, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Pride says, I don't need anyone. Pride says, I don't need God. Pride says, I can do this by myself. Pride says, you know, I've got this. I can handle this on my own. Now, you know, most Christians, we're too religious to say that out loud. We're too spiritual to say things like that in the hearing of other people. But look at the verse again. It says, in his pride, the wicked man 
does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. It doesn't say that he's hostile to God. It doesn't say that he's antagonistic to God. It just says he doesn't really think about him. He doesn't seek God. He doesn't need God. Self-sufficient pride will tie you up in a knot of godlessness. Not a hostile godlessness that shakes its fist at God, but a much more insidious passive godlessness that just has no room for God. You know, I can remember when I was young, uh, when I was a young worship leader, you know, I was a musician, and I really had no ministry training at the time and no ministry background. And every, I can remember every Sunday, I would, I would plead with God uh, before leading worship. I'd say, God, I need you. Um, I need you to show up and, and do something. God, if, if you don't do something, nothing's going to happen. God, I can't save anyone. God, I can't heal anyone. God, I can't really even encourage somebody the right way. God, I need you to show up, God, or nothing's going to happen. And and I would pray that way because I felt so, so helpless, like I didn't know what I was doing. And, and then sometimes I would look at some older pastors who I admired and respected, and I thought, you know, one day I'm going to have it together just like they have it together. And do you know now, like nearly 30 years has passed since then, and do you know what I pray every morning, you know, be, 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 every Sunday morning, God, God, I need you. God, nothing's going to happen unless you show up and do something. God, because I can't save anybody. I can't heal anybody. I can't really even encourage anybody, God, unless you show up, God, because, God, I know you've got it all together. I may not have it all together, but, God, I know you've got it all together. Because the truth is, God has given me just enough raw ability to give a nice talk, a nice speech, and have nothing matter for eternity. I mean, without his presence right, and anointing, right, and our worship team, God's given them just enough raw ability to have a nice sing-along and have nothing matter for eternity, but when God shows up in his anointing, stuff happens, people are healed in their bodies and in their hearts, and so the truth is, if you're a Sunday school teacher or whatever other ministry you do, God has given you just enough raw ability to go through the spiritual motions and have nothing matter for eternity. But when he empowers it, look out. God's going to do some amazing things. You never reach the place where you've got it all together and you don't need God's help anymore. You never reach the place where you're just so wise in your own thinking that you don't need to make room for God in your thoughts. Jesus said it this way, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Self-sufficient pride will tie you up in a knot, but God's solution for untying the knot of self-sufficient pride is in the humility of remaining in the vine. It's in the humility of daily acknowledging that we are dependent on God. It's in the humility of daily seeking Him and daily making room in our thoughts and in our minds and in our hearts for Him. Sinful pride is conceited. Sinful pride is self-sufficient. And thirdly, sinful pride is unloving. Sinful pride is unloving. Now, at first, when you hear this one, you know, some of you might ask, you know, well, Pastor Paul, how does that follow? How is sinful pride unloving? Well, let me show you. The Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians 
about how to behave in the body of Christ. And we come to chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, and he's talking about what it looks like to love one another. And in verse 4, it says this, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love is not proud. Pride can tie you up by making it difficult and impossible to love the people in your life the way that you should. How many arguments have there been in families due to the fact that someone, some sibling, some child, some parent, some spouse is too proud to give way, too filled with self to let them have their way, too filled with pride to admit they were wrong but to ask forgiveness? You know, Winston Churchill once famously said, when he was speaking of British resolve during World War II, he said, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, and we shall fight in the hills. And you know, that sentiment is great when you're talking about resisting uh, the Nazi advance. But it's not so great when it describes your family vacation. Right? Or when it describes your weekend or your everyday life, you know, that's not a great description. You know, I can remember years and years ago, my two beloved daughters and who I'm, I'm well pleased, when they were like seven and five years, seven and six years old, they were like second and first grade. Um, maybe some of you have experienced this. See, like every time we would get in the car, there was a big fight over who was going to get the best seat, who was going to get the front seat and all of that. And uh, have, am I the only one that experienced that? Anyone else experienced that? And You know, as a parent, you, you, that's not one of the things that's high on your priority list to remember who, whose turn it is, right? And so every time, I couldn't remember whose turn it was, and there's this big fight happening. No, she had a laugh, she had a laugh, you know? And uh, all of a sudden, one day I noticed, boy, they're not fighting about this anymore. What's going on? They're just like, they're not fighting at all. And, uh, and I mentioned it to Jill and said, oh, Jill said, yeah, they actually resolved that themselves. They came up with this plan. One of them will sit in the front seat when we're going anywhere that's going away from home. And the other one will sit in the front seat when we're doing anything that's heading back towards home. See, because that way, it'll be equal, right? And uh, I said, they thought of that by themselves? She said, yeah, they came, and they're like first and second grade, right? And they came up with that all by themselves. And... Uh, no more fights. And did you know that lasts all the way through elementary school, all the way through junior high, all the way through high school, and all the way through college? <laughs> I'll notice them. They still do that today. And I'm proud of them. <laughs> I am so proud of them. I think in a non-sinful pride. Because they began to look at it and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's not all about my rights and all of that. You know, and they worked together and loved each other some and came up with a solution that I believe will work until the rapture. <laughs> Pride is unloving because love requires humility. Love requires you to focus on someone else and to think about someone else and their needs. So it's very difficult to express love for anyone when your heart is filled with thoughts about your needs and your rights. That's why the Bible describes Jesus' love this way. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he 
humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' love was expressed in humility. He laid down his rights for us. The greatest love displays the greatest concern for others, which requires the greatest humility. And that's why pride can't love at the same time. There's no room for the humility that love requires. And so the more a heart gets tied up in pride, the less love is available to be expressed to other people. And so God's solution for this kind of pride is let go of your rights so that you have room to love. Let go of selfish concerns so that you have room in your heart for love. Focus on other people's needs instead of your own so that you have room for love. And when you do that, you'll find that the knot of pride is being untied and love is taking its place. Sinful pride is conceited. Sinful pride is self-sufficient. And sinful pride is unloving. And then fourthly, sinful pride provokes opposition from God. Look at James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud but gives favor or grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor or grace to the humble. Do you want God's favor? Then the pathway to God's favor is through humility. Pride puts a person in the position of being opposed by God. Pride will tie you up in an epic battle of opposition with God. And i got to tell you, that's kind of a scary place to be, don't you think? How many of you have ever felt like someone was opposing you? You know, maybe someone at work or maybe someone in your family just, just opposing you. Maybe they want the same thing that you want and, and they're just throwing things in your way, stumbling blocks in your way. You know, it's not fun to have somebody oppose you. You know, you want to go this way and somebody just throws stuff in the way. You want to go that way and someone's dragging you back, right? It's not, have fun. It's not fun having someone to oppose you. Now think for a minute about what it means to have God oppose you. I mean, it would be bad enough to have God get so frustrated with you that he just kind of wipes his hands, you know, and says, you know, okay, I'm done. I'm just backing off. I'm going to leave you to your own devices. You know, I'm not going to help you anymore. I'm just leaving you on your own. You know, that would be bad enough, right? That would be, that would be scary enough. But to get to the place where God says, I'm going to oppose you, to get to the place where God says, you know what, that guy is so full of himself that I'm going to get in his way. Or that God says, you know what, that woman is just so prideful that I'm going to start getting in the way and opposing. I mean, to have God look at your life and say, well, you know what, I'm opposing this, that's not going to work, that's not going to work, that's not going to work, that idea is dead on arrival. No, because, because God's opposing you because he's trying to get your attention. How futile is a life in which God is opposing you? Yet that's the position that pride puts a person in. And look at God's solution for this kind of pride. It's humility. God gives favor and grace to the humble. Be humble. Admit when you're wrong. Admit when you need something. Admit when you need directions. No guy said amen on that at all. I thought some women would say amen on that. Admit when you need directions. All right. Express humility in your heart. Express humility before other people. Express humility before God. Be humble. Some people struggle with this idea of expressing humility because they think that humility means that you must think bad thoughts about yourself. Because, you know, if pride is being puffed up, if, if pride is thinking that, 
you're awesome. If pride is thinking much of yourself, um, then humility must be the opposite. Humility must be thinking bad thoughts about yourself, thinking lowly about yourself, thinking poorly about yourself, but that's not true. Humility isn't thinking bad things about yourself. Humility is just not thinking about yourself at all. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. You can be just as prideful thinking all sorts of bad things about yourself as you can by thinking that you're awesome. How does that work? Well, you know, someone comes along and says, hey, can you help me with this? But you're really concerned that, um, you know, boy, I think I might fail. And what will people think about me if I fail? And uh, I might not, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I'm really worried about what everybody's thinking about me. You know, that's just as prideful because you're thinking about yourself as the person who goes, yeah, let me ask that because I'm awesome and I can do this better than anybody else. See, both of those things are pride because the focus is on self. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. Humility says, yeah, if I can help, all right, I'll try that. And it's not thinking about what people think about them, whether they think they're awesome and and, and a gift uh, to creation or whether they think they're terrible and uh, a failure. It just says, if I can help, I'll help. Humility doesn't think about itself at all. So the way you untie the knot of pride, the way you make sure that you're not putting yourself in the position of opposing God is simply to stop thinking about yourself and your own needs. Sinful pride is conceited. Sinful pride is self-sufficient. Sinful pride is unloving. Sinful pride is opposed by God. And lastly, sinful pride may be stubborn. The last kind of pride is what the Bible calls stubborn pride. This is the kind of pride that just will not let go. Even in the face of opposition, it will not give up. Even when God himself is opposing it, this pride just will not give in. It's stubborn pride. And you can find it described in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Here in this chapter, the people of Israel have just recently been delivered from bondage in the land of Egypt. And in the book of Leviticus, we see God is defining the covenant that he has just made between him and the Israelites. And his aim, his design, is to make them into a unique people who serve him and will be known as a people who are in a special covenant relationship with the Most High God. And in chapter 26, God pauses to show them what will happen if they obey the covenant and what will happen if they forsake the covenant. And so, In verses 1 to 13, God promises all of these blessings if they will be faithful to the covenant. He promises rain and and good crops and fruitfulness and safety and peace and confidence and freedom and and God's favor and blessing and protection and, and God's presence will be with them. And then in verses 14 to 39, God tells them what is going to happen to them if they forsake the covenant. And what follows is a list of consequences, each one more severe than the last. And these consequences are designed to be corrective in nature. They're intended to bring them to a place of humility and back to covenant faithfulness. Their crops will fail, increase in disease, loss of strength, loss of freedom. They'll be ruled by foreign powers. There'll be terror and frightening situations. And then in verses 18 and 19, it says this. God says, if after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride. So here's the situation that's being described to us. 
In self-reliant pride, Israel has forsaken its covenant relationship with God, and, and God has begun to oppose them. Remember, God opposes the proud. Right? God is opposing them, and he's bringing corrective discipline that is designed to bring them back into relationship with him. And, but the picture that is given is that even after all of this discipline, Israel remains obstinate, and God calls it stubborn pride. It's pride that persists in the face of many rebukes. It's, it's pride that persists even in the face of opposition from God. And look what God's remedy is for stubborn pride. He says, I will break down your stubborn pride. Now God has gone from opposing something to a place where he says he is going to break it down. There's a determination of God's will here. Can I tell you something? The last battle that you want to find yourselves in is a battle of wills between you and God Almighty. I mean, that is the definition of an exercise in futility. And so God goes on in the next several verses to describe how he's going to break down their stubborn pride. There's, there are more consequences, each one increasing in intensity and each one designed to bring them to humility and restoration until finally they're removed from the promised land. Stubborn pride, it's a pride that would rather be destroyed than admit that it's wrong. Proverbs 16, 18 says it this way, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling or before a fall. Have you ever met someone like this? Someone who just keeps going on a destructive course because they just can't admit they're wrong? You know, there's this story that was told of a, of a captain of a ship, and when he looked out into the dark of the night, he saw this light in the distance, so he had his signalman send a message, alter your course 10 degrees south, and he promptly received a reply that said, alter your course 10 degrees north. And so the captain was upset and sent another reply back. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a captain. And soon afterwards, another reply came, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a seaman third class. And finally, this enraged captain sent one more reply. And he said, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a battleship. And the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> Sometimes when you get stubborn in your pride because you think you're just that important and being right is that, is that important, it can lead you to destruction. And there are many examples in the Bible of people whose stubborn pride led to their destruction. If we had time, we could talk about King Saul and Haman and Samson and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and King Zedekiah, all of whom came to destruction because of their stubborn pride. Stubborn pride will tie you in a knot so tight that you can't untie it, that you need God to break it. And there's only one way it is broken. It's found in Proverbs 29, 23. It says, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. A humble spirit will obtain honor honor. The only thing that breaks stubborn pride is humility. Humility that comes from the grace of God. That is the only doorway out. Sinful pride is conceited. Sinful pride is self-sufficient. 
Sinful pride is unloving. Sinful pride is opposed by God. And stubborn sinful pride leads to destruction. But at every point, at every point, there is a way out. There's an escape hatch. And written on it in big, bold letters is the word humility. Humility leads you to a place of honor and table with